0: This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 8.
1: I've seen so many people, when you start presenting an idea around potential, they start evaluating themselves. So there's this whole level of anxiety and self-reflection that's triggered by saying, hey, you know, a high potential is someone who's got great learning agility and motivated to be successful and has the right strategic thinking and great relationship skills. And they start sitting there saying, Would I have been a high potential? Uh oh. And that causes anxiety and then pushback and just resistance to the whole concept.
0: Why is defining potential so difficult to do? What are the three types of potential and when should you use them? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders. Who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future? During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field and, most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Alan Church. Alan's a thought leader and one of the foremost experts in the world on talent management. Recently, Alan has co-founded Mastro Consulting, where he works with Fortune 500 companies to identify, build, and strengthen talent pipelines. Prior to launching his own consultancy, Alan was the SVP Global Talent Management for PepsiCo, where he had an amazing 21-year career and was responsible for setting the enterprise talent assessment and development strategy for all levels of the organization. Alan has authored several books, over 30 book chapters, and over 150 articles. He's also an adjunct full professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, where he teaches a popular course on strategic talent management. If the topic is talent or potential, Alan is the one you want to talk to. In our conversation today, Alan and I discussed the three types of potential, why they matter and when to use them, PepsiCo's Grade 5 leadership model and how it applies at different stages of your career, and why communicating potential ratings will increase, not decrease, employee engagement, and much more. Alan, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, JP. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for you to be on the show as well. Let's jump into it. You recently retired from PepsiCo as Senior Vice President Global Talent Management after a 21-year career. What an impressive career that was. I'm curious for everyone listening, what are a few important lessons that you've learned in that time period?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I started out as an OD professional so prior to even coming to PepsiCo. So I had this concept of OD Organization change, helping people, growth and development. When I got to PepsiCo, it was a very different kind of culture, very developmental, but very driven. And so in the first couple of years, it was, you know, bring your expertise. So I was definitely JP, a buy hired versus a build, right? But, um, but I came in and started working on the 360 and the surveys. And very quickly, within the first two or three years, I started expanding my role. And so I started taking on talent development and high potential work and DEI work, external non-financial reporting kinds of things. And over time, it just was all about growth and learning for me. Even, even to the very end, when I think roles changed, I you know, picked up different groups, I moved away from different groups, picked up some clients, changed clients again. And so for me, when I think back about it, it was a tremendous opportunity to learn and grow. And I was thinking about the question, and I really have three kind of lessons. And these are personal hmm. lessons, JP. They're more for your listeners and, and people to think about growing than they are lessons for influencing a talent management agenda, right? That's probably a different podcast one day. Perhaps these are, <laughs> these are more right. for the future talent listening to this. But the first one from a growth and development perspective, being in a company like PepsiCo and being anywhere probably is to be proactive. So to me, you know, yeah, a company like PepsiCo and many others will provide opportunities for your growth, but. They don't always, and they don't come all the time. And so one of the things you really need to think about as a growing professional is how you seek those out, how you create opportunities for yourself to learn and grow and to do projects, maybe work with people, maybe ask for someone to mentor you or help you think through, build networks internally. And the organization appreciates that as a sign of stretch. So it's really good Hmm. to, to be proactive on the first side. The second part of it is take advantage of the opportunities that people give you right? So a lot of people I know will say, oh, I'd love to do that. And when something comes along, they start to hesitate and say, well, I'm busy. I've got too much going on. If I do that, I might not do a good job or I might not be successful or wow, I don't even know how to do that. And in a company such as PepsiCo, those kinds of opportunities, when they come, you really need to take advantage of them. And it's okay if you're nervous about it. It's okay if you're not sure. Better to give it a shot and to try and learn from it than to avoid it. And there's a couple of quotes that are part of the culture there that I'll share with you on point two, which is, sometimes the job you think is the worst is actually the best. Never turn down a job that hasn't been offered. (laughs) So that's that's kind of the idea of not walking around telling people you don't want something to avoid getting it. And never focus on the job in the future that you want, because it may not be there when you get there. hmm. And in an organization like PepsiCo, where, where there's no strict career path and it's very much about experiential learning and taking on new jobs and experiences and things like that. When you're at a company like that, you really want to focus on where you are and delivering what you're doing now and not so much looking over your shoulder or looking up at the next role because it really does change. The organization moves so quickly, the structures move, you know, people move around a lot. And so nothing that you see today is really gonna be there necessarily tomorrow. It might be, but it might not. And so focusing on the future just to focus on your career is not the best approach right? So better make the most of what you have in front of you than (laughs) than actually long for the future, right? Right.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think what you're kind of saying there is a lot of times we are really thinking about the future and so future-oriented, but that's actually short-term thinking. Because by by focusing on the future, you're not focusing on the now and making those opportunities and seeing when they pop up or being proactive. And and so it's a really interesting perspective because we do get a little bit lost of, gosh, I'll be happy when, when I get that job.
1: That's right. right. Or, or <clears throat> the other one I've heard is, I really want to work for that manager and I don't want to work for this manager. Well, okay, that might be true. And yes, the old saying goes I, from research from what 20 years ago that people join companies and leave bosses, but that's not entirely true. They also leave companies. A great resignation is a good example. And if you're able to stick it out with a boss, you can, you can learn from that experience. And that's the third one I'd say is always be focused on learning. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's related to the last two, but it's broader. So learning you can internally from the experiences but also learning from the things that you're you're not doing right figuring out what you'd like to do in the future but not from a job point of view just i'd love to be interested in this area maybe i can get on this team or maybe i can just observe this process that they're doing you know sit in on a talent review and, and just listen i don't have to i don't have to engage but i can learn how things are going and it's all about what can i learn from the situation so a bad boss my feedback to people has always been hey if you have a bad boss see what you can learn from him anyway there's always something you can learn from a bad boss even at the least how not to be a bad boss yourself. But there's usually something they do well or they wouldn't be in charge of something, you know, they wouldn't be employed. <laughs> so if they're that bad they wouldn't be there. So, you know, you can learn from every situation and that includes even times JP when and you know, you and I've gone back a long time, but even when you might stagnate, right? Maybe there's a period of growth in your career, maybe you stop. But how do you keep learning when you're stuck? And that's another question I get from people and and my mm-hmm. advice back is to say Focus on other things, focus on deepening your skills, right? Focus on broadening your skills. So maybe it's a learning and reading and, you know, getting engaged externally in some groups, some, you know, professional networks or doing podcasts or whatever it might be that give you a chance to meet other people and learn other things, even if it's outside your job, because ultimately you'll be a better, well-rounded.
0: I think that's really good advice and being proactive, taking those opportunities, learning and continue to learn is really the core of I think having a really successful career. And it's interesting, let's talk a little bit about when you are stagnating, if you feel that way. Yeah. Cuz I you know, I tell my kids, look, there's no such thing as being bored, only boring people. <laughs> right? And I kind of think about learning the same way, like, you know, you, you really you can't stagnate if you are, you got to take accountability to figure out what do you want to learn? What do you want to grow? But what do you say to people who say, "Well, gosh, Alan, you know, I just I've been at this job for 5, 10 years." It is. And you know, it's like, how do I get out of this? Right. How do I maybe make that shift out of a role that people just see me and I'm pigeonholed?
1: Yeah. And I think uh, that's a great question. And, you know, pigeonholing is tough and, and it's more so, I think JP for specialists, perhaps in HR than generalists. Although even generalists can get stuck saying you're, you're a certain kind of generalist client person, right? You can have a certain group of, you're only a sales generalist, right? And you get stuck in that kind of situation. But the way you get out of that is to, you know, Focus your time, take a carve out a piece of time, even if it's difficult, and focus on building a new skill that you can bring to bear in the future. And you can show people that A, you can learn, and B, you actually have content they haven't seen. Right. Mm. So you have an impact somewhere they haven't seen. And maybe you learn about compensation if you haven't, you know, if you don't know about that. Maybe you study up on performance management and you bring in friends in performance management as the couple of years ago, the whole idea of getting rid of ratings, which, you know, is kind of a challenge but you study up on that and say hey I've been reading this in a meeting with your boss or with some colleagues and say this is interesting I'd love to talk about that and find a way to break into other areas that people can see you in a different light because that's what has to happen right and I think we'll talk about potential later on today but but there's this distinction between the perception of potential and real potential so yeah. you're trying to change that perception by learning and showing that you can learn
0: yeah I think that's it's a really important distinction and we will talk more about potential in a moment But I want to dive into talent management. This is a really important topic for next-gen HR leaders to understand. What is talent management? How do you define it? What aspects are most critical for next-gen HR leaders to learn? And you are, frankly, one of the foremost experts in this topic, which is why I want to talk to you about it. So tell us more about talent management, Alan.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, JP. I appreciate the, the compliment there. I think one of the challenges with talent management is it's not a field, right? It's a profession. And, and it didn't even exist until I want to say what, two, six, two, seven. And even to this day, there aren't really talent management conferences, right? So it's still, it's still kind of a collection of different practices that have been around a long time, but not the actual name. And I think that's part of why it's, it's confusing to people, but a lot of people have different definitions of what TM is, right? And a lot of organizations, we've done some research, have different organizational structures, which doesn't help either. And so when I moved into the area in roughly four, I started doing some of what today would be considered talent management work. I wanted to figure it out. I didn't quite know what it was, right? And we started adding my t- the title talent management to my job. And I, I'm not really sure what that means. So I spent some time you know, doing some research early on. And um, over the years, I've kind of refined my perspective on TM. And it's pretty specific. So I'm going to tell you what it is. And then we'll talk about how it's different from some others, perhaps. But this is the church definition of talent management. So talent management is the process of identifying, assessing, developing, planning, and moving current or future leadership throughout the organization, right? So that what's different there is it's not it's not the new HR. I mean, no way, right? HR is HR. Talent management is something else. It's a subset of HR. And I talk about leadership in from the context of talent in that talent management to me is more about the few, right? You think about this distinction of the many and the few, and if organization development is about the many and about changing cultures and broad performance and EVPs and change and inclusion, talent management is about identifying those unique leaders, those people with potential at whatever level in the organization they are, whether it's early career or close to succession to senior roles, and developing them at an accelerated pace, right? So finding out who they are, helping them close their gaps and enhance their strengths, and really getting them ready. And so it, it's a very different focus. And to me, that makes it a a few, you know, population. And so it's you you have to think through that talent management is not everything. It's not the kitchen sink. And I think some people get confused, you know, with mm-hmm. that. And you know funny, I specifically don't include talent acquisition in there. I don't know if you caught it, but it but I have identification first, right? Assessing, yeah. developing, planning, and moving, not acquisition. And part of it is probably historically a PepsiCo acquisition was not. The same as a talent management COE, so that's you know where I came from. But we did a study, Chris Rotolo and I did a study a number of years ago, and you, I'm sure you answered the survey, JB, that looked at functions. And in top 100 companies that we surveyed, 96% of the companies had a talent acquisition function, but only 50% reported to TM. So mm-hmm. it's not under there always. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I, you know, talent acquisition, I have lots of friends in there, right? That's a great function, and it's very strategic. But it's also often broad-based and it really typically ends up bringing in the talent, not so much what happens to them when they get there.
0: I think it's a good distinction. And some organizations do want the integrated view and put talent acquisition under a talent leader who's got talent management, learning development. And I think that's good to have kind of one view, almost like a director or producer for a yeah. movie. But <laughs> honestly, when you really get into it, and I've had both where I've had talent management alone or and have talent acquisition underneath me, the challenge is town acquisition can suck you up. It is yep. a very demanding role. There's especially executive recruiting or if you're going for software engineers or whatever sure. it happens to be, it's a lot of time. And it what happens is that in my point of view, in the top job, is you kind of it's hard to basically focus your time and make the impact you want to make. So I do understand why large organizations really keep it separate. But I think the point that you made, let's go back to this, Alan, is talent management's for the few. And it's right. really it's more of a strategy decision. It's like, who are we not going to focus on? And who, and who are we going to focus on and try to develop? And I think that's probably where it gives some people some, some angst. It's like, oh, wow, yeah. we're, we're, we're ignoring some people because we're only focusing on these leaders? Talk more about that and I guess your point of view.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great point and I've certainly run into it over the years. Having done probably 20 of my 30-year career in OD, which is really the many, right? Work development focused on the many and culture. And the other... 12 or so, whatever it is, focused on the few in talent management and even at certain points together. But the challenge is when you talk about segmenting or identifying talent or picking people, hopefully in a valid and responsible way with research, but companies do it without. But when you pick people to focus on and give them extra resources, it's not inclusive. I mean, just by definition, it can't be, right? Differentiated talent practices are not inclusive. And the OD side is, and so you always have this tension between how do I develop everybody yet only pull through some people, right? And I know, you know, John Boudreau, who's a colleague and friend of ours. And he had, I've had some debates over the years with his whole, his focus on really getting, getting tight on some talent populations, right? Whether it's pivotal or others, but he has really come at it with, you need to focus on the ones that have the most impact, which I, I get. And I would argue future leaders are that. But I also think very strongly you need about, you know, I don't know if it's 40-60 or 60-40 or whatever, but you need half your budget, half your function, whatever it is, focused on the many because that's the 85% of the company that keeps it going, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the 15% you're focusing on giving them extra stuff and pulling them through and they're probably some percentage of those folks will run the company one day. But the rest, the rest are running your company every day, right? And they're in those jobs and they're delivering and they're making outstanding results you need to reward those people, recognize them, develop them, make them feel part of the culture, make them feel included. And that's, I think we had a bit of a challenge with that broadly in the industry from maybe 210 to the COVID situation, right? I think that, mm. that if I want to think about it, the swing was inclusion early in, in 2000s. And then all of a sudden we went to hypos, right? And, it, you know, PepsiCo, we've always had both, but I, I know a lot of companies where that debate was raging. I think COVID has pushed us in the other direction again. And so it's an interesting dynamic. Mm. But you're always going to have that tension, JP. It's just, it's any sort of assessment work gets you in that space too, really.
0: Yeah, and I think you really eloquently described that. I always think about it as development for all, targeted development for some or few. Yeah. Right, because you do want to, be like, you do want to invest in everybody. You want everyone's career to grow. They are making an impact in the organization. But we can't put everyone through a $10,000 leadership program.
1: No, <laughs> absolutely. The other thing that's interesting is, Over the years in my career, I mean, I've been in, you know, as you have, I know, 20 years of talent reviews, right? I mean, we're (laughs) multiple times where we reviewed, you know, talent at different levels with the senior team, with the CEO, with, you know, even the board at some points, or even mid level in in the organization. And talent plans are really important to do. I mean, I really do believe in them. And I think you need to talk about people and, and think it through and think through experiences. But let's face it, they don't always come true right it's a, it's a bit of an exercise in in sort of predictive modeling in a nice way to put it or what if scenarios right but often the slate that you have if it's if it's a week away after you've done that review and talked about who's the successor to this job a week later yeah you can pull the trigger on the people you thought about 6 months later some of them have left some have gone to a different job the job has changed the business has changed so you know i i think it's uh it's a little bit of a fallacy to think that it all should be hypos, and that you know if somebody's not
0: a hypo, you shouldn't be focused on them too. When I think about succession planning, what I like to do is track succession planning, right? If you can do this in your organization if it's small enough, can you track the moves we made and what we predicted, and then the next year come back and show the leaders that, hey, you know we actually were thirty percent right I mean seventy yeah. percent of the time we didn't do what we said we're going to do, and it's not to like make them feel bad about it. It's to say, well, how do we get better instead of saying to somebody, Oh, they'll be ready next year. They'll be ready next year. Well, maybe, maybe they really aren't going to be ready for some reason. And we should tell them why we think they're not going to be ready or be honest with ourselves a little bit that we are going to go external for that CFO role, even though we've had someone we think in the waiting for five years. So I think it's a little bit of, I love we were talking about this We It's a little bit educated guess, but the mm-hmm. more we can be more pragmatic and just rational about these decision makings and no we can't really solve all of it but hey you know if we get 80% right awesome
1: yeah well and we'll talk about that i think in a minute with how you make a more yeah. informed set of decisions and how you think about that right yeah. but i do want to just you've you've spurred a thought the metric conversation so metrics are great And organizations that love metrics will follow them, right? Especially if metrics influence pay outcomes for senior leaders. So it's a great mechanism, even from an org development point of view, to drive change. The problem, I would say, is in some companies, metrics become consuming. And so I do have experience with that. Let's propose changes for next year. And then when we come back a year later, let's see how we did. And the first year it was a great idea and we came back and it was what you say, 30% even even if it's 60% JP, whatever it is, it wasn't a hundred. And so the following year, the predictions, if you will, or the commitments were engineered to be a hundred when done. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just a metric. I mean, so all the other moves that happened or didn't happen were sort of taken off of the deck, right. Off of the commitment level and there are more plans or ideas So you have to be careful about metrics, period, and talent management. It's The the other one that's a great example is percentage of hypos moved. I've I've seen that one. Many people talk about that as as a possible metric. And that sounds great in theory, right? You're going to move your hypos. You're not going to pass the trash. You're going to actually move your good people. The problem is, again, if you have a target, you will meet the target. And you might meet the target by calling some people who are not hypos, hypos, just to meet the target. And conversely, not calling, you know, hypos, hypos, right? So you keep your best people by downgrading them in a system just to avoid moving them. I've seen that too. So you have to be careful with metrics and talent work. It really is tough. Let's
0: talk about potential. How do you define it? And why is it so hard for managers and organizations to align on the definition of it?
1: Yeah. So potential is another one. It's, that's a probably one of the few that's actually more complicated than talent management, right? As a definition. But um and you know I've I've spent a lot of time in this field. So again, early on when I took over, it was a bit of what's our definition? Let's standardize it, Alan. But it was it was more of an organizational definition, which I think is pretty common still today, this idea of people that can move two levels, right? But but what's it based on? So my question as soon as I started asking that, I wanted to get underneath it. And, you know, there's a model that I've created called the Leadership Potential Group, and I'll talk about it in a second. But I want to start, JP, with with the answer to your question in three ways. The The first I'd say is the reason it's so hard for people to define it is because they don't know what it is. They don't have any theory or background or anything to hang their hat on. So it's just a context issue. And they think performance is it, which, you know, if you're fact fiction kind of thing, performance is not potential, right? They're related, but it's not. But they hang their hat on performance first. And they get heated about it because their high performers are important to them. The second reason, honestly, is psychological. I've seen so many people, when you start presenting an idea around potential, here's a framework, they start evaluating themselves. So there's this whole level of anxiety and self-reflection that's triggered by saying, hey, you know, a high potential is someone who's got great learning agility and motivated to be successful and has the right strategic thinking and great relationship skills. And they start sitting there saying, would I have been a high potential? Uh-oh. And that causes anxiety and then pushback and just resistance to the whole concept. <laughs> so I think that's part of it too. <laughs> and then the third, the third element, which I think will be helpful to your, your audience, is there really, I would argue, three kinds of potential that get talked about and confused, right? And the first one is what I call general potential or human potential, right? And it's kind of that growth mindset overall. That's the latent qualities and abilities that can be developed by anyone to be successful in life. Your kids have potential, right? So, so we're not talking about general potential when you talk about, you know, people and organizations. That's, that's the, everybody has that. And that's that OD mindset that you have to remember is important because if you don't acknowledge that, you tick people off and they tune out. All right, So yeah, everybody's got potential. We should develop everybody. Great. Put that over here. Okay. Then there's leadership potential, which I think is the most common one that people think about. And we talk about here, it's kind of the, you know, the standard version. And if you think about that, and you can separate it. That's the skills, abilities, behaviors, knowledge that are really early predictors of future leadership effectiveness. So it's the combination of trait and behaviors and skill and knowledge. So it's not any one thing. But that when you see it, when you measure it, when you know what it is, and you can quantify it a bit, you can discuss that person's trajectory, right? You can see they are standing above, they are doing more. Those are why you think they can go two levels or three levels or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So that's leadership potential. The other one that people confuse, and I think this is maybe helpful as well, is destination potential. And, you know, organizations really focus on leadership potential, destination potential. Destination potential is that more senior discussion, right? When you're talking succession and people get hung up with, well, how can an SVP that's two layers away from the CEO have potential? They're they're already, okay, yeah, maybe they're not a high potential in the standard sense, but they are either on the slate for a bigger job or they're not. Where is their final, you know, their destination from a, destination from a, career point of view. Are they going to be CFO? Are they going to be CMO of the company, CIO? Are they going to be a CEO candidate? Okay. Knowing that, let's look at their strengths and opportunities, their experiences, what they need to get to close gaps to get there, to get ready. That's the destination side. So you move away from this high potential problem at senior leadership, and it's more about targeted potential, if you will, right? Mm. So that's how I I like to think about potential these days. It's those three buckets and you try to walk through it with people before you get going so that they understand that you're not dismissing everybody in the room as having no potential, right? So that's the way I would, I would take it. The other complexity, JP, unfortunately, is there's a difference between, and we just wrote an article in Leadership Quarterly about this, so I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a little technical for some of the audience, but we did look at research on performance versus potential and indicators and how that works. But anyone who sat in a talent review knows that there is this organization perception of potential. And I would call that designated potential. Hmm. So that's what the organization thinks of you. Whatever it's based on, doesn't matter. That's their call. And that may or may not actually reflect your capabilities. Right. (laughs) You would like it to. You would hope it does, but it often doesn't. And it's that whole idea of the breakfast meet and greet where you have food in your teeth and it ruins your with a CEO one day, right? Whatever it might be, or that one bad exchange in a meeting, or that one bad. Presentation. You stood up for your annual operating plan, and you got skewered. You didn't recover fast enough. You're over, right? That's sort of that designated potential, and and part of you know what uh, Jay Conger and I wrote about in, in the High Potential Advantage book is how individuals. It's almost like a self-help for potential book. How individuals can do things to overcome that organizational designated potential perspective. So there's that piece of it, and then there's measured potential, right? And that's the two of them together. Is where I'd be pushing everyone who loves the nine box. I'm telling you, the nine box you have doesn't work. Use this nine box that has both the perceived potential or the designated and the measured.
0: Let's talk about the nine box for a second because, sure. you know, any tool that we've relied on too much, um, and, and it's just a tool, right, to have dialogue a lot of times. Starts to become the end all be all of talent, and so I'd love to hear your perspective on this because I think it's an area where more and more people are saying it doesn't work for us. It's not working for our organization. So how do you fix it?
1: Yeah, so the nine box is a is an interesting case, right? So um, Dr. Bob Eichinger is one of the uh, and you know founders of the nine box, and he was at Pepsi at the time and went on to do great stuff with Learning Agility and Lominger, but. Um, and he and I have had this debate even as recently as a few months ago. You know, I wrote an article for for Mark Efron in Talent Quarterly. I, you, I know you have it, JP. And my experience with the nine box at PepsiCo was people really love to debate what box the person's in more than why we're doing it, right? And what is going on with the person. So part of that is because most implementations of the nine box are performance by potential, but that potential is nothing like I just talked about. It's at best perceived potential or, or, you know, designated, but nobody knows what is designated based on. So you've got performance, which honestly, if we're all, you know, clear with ourselves and transparent, performance management isn't the most accurate either, right? So in most companies, I mean, sure, if you're in sales or or operations where you can measure something, but a lot of the professional jobs in companies are kind of squishy, objective, somebody's making a rating, but okay, take that aside. You can still kind of bucket your people into low, medium, high performers. But then you bucket them into potential. And what happens is if your company is using performance as I think 75% do as an indicator of potential, you've just created a linear relationship, basically, right? I mean, you've got most people you think are low potential because they're low performers. So what is the point of doing that grid? And so Mm -hmm. what happens is people then debate, well, this person really doesn't belong in there because their performance was X or, you know, it just, it doesn't help you. And I've seen these crazy ones on on the internet where there's names for the boxes of potential, and it's like you know, it just it's horrible. And the names become the labels for people, types of talent, which again, you know, just destroys their career. And I think that's just the wrong way to do it. What I suggest instead, and I wrote about in that article, and I practiced at PepsiCo even to the very last months I was there with the CFO and some work, is taking a look at. Organizational potential, right? So, you know, designated how the organization sees these people, and then having some real data, right? So, that data could be from tools like 360, or maybe it's an integrated assessment, which I'd, you know, push for, but things that look at a combination of maybe personality, some strategic thinking and cognitive skills, some learning agility, motivation and drive, right? And then some leadership skills like inspirational leadership and relationship management and, you know, vision and those kinds of things. And, see how those people did, right? So maybe you have some great leaders that the organization loves that really don't do well. That's going to happen, right? And you're still going to love them. And so those people you have to decide, it's not that I would say ever, don't make them hypos. Those people you have to decide in that box, are we going to develop them further? Or are we going to be okay with their challenges? And we're fine with that, but we know what we're dealing with. On the the contrast, the bottom right side of that whole box is we don't think these people have potential, yet every indicator points that they do. So that's not Hmm. really performance, right? That's saying our predictive model, our data, so whether they reflect the behaviors we believe in or the values or whatever it is, they look really good. So why aren't they hypos? So it's a version of the nine box, but it's not using performance. Performance to me, JP, is a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. It gets you in the game. If you're not performing, why are you even talked about? Right? right? In that context of a potential, you're not performing, get them off the grid. If you're performing well or better, then let's talk about how we think about them and what we know about them. Hmm. So that's my approach to nine box.
0: Yeah. So what we think about them and what we know about them, I think is a really good way to think about it. The other thing I guess I'd ask Alan, because you've done the research and we'll talk more about what you did at PepsiCo around early stage career, big career, et cetera. When you're looking at other things, like, you know, what we know about them, whether it's, you know, IQ, EQ, learning sure. agility, etc. Is it context specific, right? So maybe someone who isn't being a star here for some reason is culturally, right? But they leave, they go someplace else, and they're a director or a VP, and they have a great career. And you're like, well, what happened? Over here, they were just average. How much yeah. does culture play into the potential rating Your your perspective?
1: I think I think it plays quite a bit. I mean, it's the, um, we like to call it hero, uh, hero alpo or hypo alpo, right? I mean, it's um, it's an interesting <laughs>
0: dynamic. Define that for us, define that for everyone. I know, it, I know what you're talking about. but Yeah, so, it so you,
1: it's the idea that in a talent review or a talent meeting, you have a list of high potentials and you talk about them and somebody says, that person's no longer a hypo for whatever reason. Again, it could have been something as simple as a bad presentation or maybe they missed a, you know, missed a performance metric. And all of a sudden they go from a hypo to dog food. And, you know, (laughs) nothing wrong with Alpo. It's loved by dogs everywhere worldwide, I think. But, but you know, that's the idea that you're going from the top to the bottom instantly, right? Or And low po is another one. There's lots of ways you can name it. But that happens quite frequently in organizations, unfortunately. And again, the more that potential is based on just organizational perception and the handful of people sitting in a room So that designated, if you will, with no input from tools, the harder it is for anybody, including advocates of that person, to fight back, right? So that's one of the things that happens, I think. And the reality is if those people were thought of as hypos originally, they're probably pretty good for some reason, right? They must have some strengths. They're not going to just be hypos for existing. So what was it that happened is one issue, but once they're written off and they leave, they take that capability elsewhere, and they are stars elsewhere. So I, to your point, I mean, there are many people over the years in my career who I would say, all across all functions, including HR, who were one day great and the next day not, and they went off and there's running companies, they're CHROs, there are all kinds of things in other places all over the you know, world. And they were great people, and it just, something went sideways for them in some cases, right? Not every case. In some cases, there are other things that happen, Right. But I think that's just a challenge. And the more you have data, the more you can make the good argument as a talent management and HR professional to your clients that these people have all the indicators. So whatever we're seeing, whatever you're irritated about with at the moment, or whatever that snap judgment that's made today, let's take a step back and really see if that makes sense because they're fantastic talent and the data says they're wonderful. People love them or whatever it is, right? They have great influence skills, their direct reports love them. They're very strategic on the tool. So what is it that really is causing this change overnight?
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about I have Pepsi you did a formula for leadership potential and you talked about different models by career stage. What are some of the important implications for early career and mid career next gen hr leaders that came out of that study.
1: So, I guess I didn't entirely answer your question before, so I'll try and weave it into this one.
0: So, context also
1: matters from the point of view of these factors that you talk about, whatever model you're using, if it's the Conger model that I did or the blueprint which is more academic but, you know, more content specific or the PepsiCo framework, they or anybody else's for that matter, you know, context matters both to the level you're at as well as what the organization's looking for. And and even to some extent, what those destination roles are, right. Depending on where you are in your career. And so earlier in your career, you know, you're going to be assessed on your drive, how well you can learn, how well you purely deliver. I mean, delivery is really important always, but certainly people want to see results and, you know, how well you just sort of fit into the structure, but push back where you need to, right. You've got to have a little bit of that push. So you know, when we did the, the last model, I think I've done five leadership models, JP, at PepsiCo in my time, because right? it changed. We had, you know, four CEOs, five CHROs. I had 17 bosses over the years. So, um, And I was kind of always holding the glue of, of how we do this work. But we did mo- modify the models. And every time I'd say the emphasis of the models different, but the fundamentals are the same. And there's always something about these, these areas. And the last one we did, which is the one I'm proudest of, actually, this great five you're mentioning when, in the article, I think, from two years ago. It's still there. It was super well-received, and it's partly because it's simple yet expansive and research-based. So let me run through the grade five, and then I'll, I'll answer your question about emphasis. Grade five. G is for growth, so that's curiosity, active learning. R is relationships, straightforward, right? E is execution, so for PepsiCo, execution is important. So performance is super important for us, and it matters. And it's something that is it is important, and it's in the baseline, right? Agility. Can you adapt to change? And think about just before COVID, that was perfect. I didn't know it was going to be in a COVID thing, but it was there. And thinking. And the reason thinking is in there is because, you know, a lot of organizations have this, we want to deliver, we're so focused on execution at short term, we also want people to realize you have to be long-term focused as well, right? So great leaders, right? It works perfectly, right? From good to great, all these, it was just a wonderful uh, label to land on. But when we looked at the research to validate it, so we did go back and validate, and I think important for your listeners, validation is not just talking about whether this makes sense, right? For those who don't know the technical side of it, validation is running some research internally on, you know, a couple hundred to a thousand or more employees who would be part of this in the future and getting a sense of how they did on the tool and how their performance is as well, right? From senior leaders and making sure that it predicts outcomes you want. And it's legally defensible, so you have to do that before you use these kind of tools for decisions. But we ran all that, and what we found was that execution and thinking were most important in early career. Mm. So, really, just delivering on a regular basis and thinking about the future and kind of voicing that idea, right? So, I see I'm doing a great job today, and I'm think about it as continuous improvement, almost, right? And hey, manager, here's some other things we could do differently in the future that might make it better. That got you noticed as a higher performer and a higher potential person earlier. As you went up the ladder, relationships became equally, if not more important. You had to keep the other two, but relationships played a role. And I would say that it's relationships beyond, beyond the Rolodex, right? So I don't know if that's a phrase we can use, but relationships beyond the Rolodex. <laughs> right? Because it's not just who you know, although certainly networking is great, but it's the ability to influence people through relationships, right? To get things done by working the network. And it's a bit of your point earlier about culture, right? Once you figure it out, and you know how to influence, you're much more effective. And you already have the delivery and the ability to think strategically as well. So you can package that and really get things done. And that's sort of the mid-level one. And the growth and agility, kind of learning agility and just growth mindset kind of thing, they were important all the way.
0: My favorite saying for high potentials is that they know what to do when they don't know what to do. Right? Can you figure it out? Can we throw that person in that situation and they're going to just yeah power through it and use intellect relationships their network, be resourceful yeah and get to a solution that that's right for the organization
1: yeah well, that goes back j p d to the point we started with, which is that take advantage of opportunities or find them right and and basically those are not that I would ever say I was a high potential because I don't think I was right I, honestly as a deep <laughs> specialist, you know I made the choice to to go that route, so maybe I was a Destination high potential for head of talent management, but right, but but even so, it, those are the same attributes. It's really, yeah. If you give them more, can they figure it out? Did they take it on? Do they do it? Or, and if they fail, do they learn from it? And hopefully, you're in a culture that can accept that, right? And that's a good thing, but or at least you know tolerable, right? That you fail and you learn. But it's those people that will take on more and and get it done and find a way and learn from it that are the ones that stand out, and those become your go to people. And those go-to people are the first ones you look at when you want to make a promotion or, or put somebody in another job, right?
0: Absolutely. And I want to clarify, I think you are a high potential, Alan. Um, <laughs> no, I'm teasing. You, and you, by the way, even though you have retired, you have a long career ahead of you and influence around talent management. And I'm excited to see what you're doing next. We'll talk about that maybe at the end. One thing I want to ask you, though, about potential, one of the great debates in HR is how transparent we should be with someone's view of potential to advance in the organization. I know you've done some research on this topic. What's your point of view on this?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I, you know, again, my OD roots will be visible here, right? Um, and so my OD roots say we should be as transparent as we absolutely possibly can with people. And I, I think the emerging talent, the new talent, new generations, even the current mid-level want transparency. And I think it's going to become even more important but I think that value is something that engenders trust in the organization and belief. And if you don't have it, if you don't tell people where they really stand or you give them false positive messages, nobody's going to give false negatives, right? You give false positives and that sets people up. And I think that's a problem. So I truly believe in transparency. And it's funny, JP, I was thinking about this. Um, I was I can remember back to even in 2004 when I had my first meetings with the HRLT and Every year, practically, we would have a debate about should we be transparent this year. And interestingly, it was always the uh, almost always—I shouldn't say always always. always—almost always the young, earlier career, if you will, HR professionals who were senior leaders, obviously, at the table. But um, but they were pushing for the transparency, and the ones who had been around the organization and been there for a long time were the ones saying we maybe shouldn't because it causes issues. You know, and we always pushed on the issues, and the issues, the concerns were three. And I think everybody else has agreed, you and I have talked about this over the years. Everybody else agrees with these concerns, right? Hypos will become entitled and then they demand more, they deliver less, and that just goes badly. So nobody wants to tell anybody they're hypo. Hypo calls change, which we've talked about, right? Perceptions change. The hypo alpo can happen, and nobody wants to tell someone that they don't have potential either. So you're in a situation where you've got a list of 20 hypos and five of them are no more hypos. You're not going to tell them. So then transparency is again a problem because you were transparent the first time, but not the second time. And the third one is the concern that non-hypos will get irritated and leave. And I'll tell you, you know, that's all well and good. And I'm sure some of that all occurs. But but I think from our research at PepsiCo, we really found that being transparent with how people stack up on potential did not have the negative consequences that we thought it would. Um, And and part of that was through our assessments. So we did did over 10,000 assessments while I was there. But in the early career population, we did a couple thousand a year. And we went transparent with that population. And this is in another article, JP, you can share with your listeners. But we found that we told people how they compared, gave them a rating of what level of potential, what level of lift, if you will, they were compared to against the senior leaders ahead of them, right? Two levels up. And- we told them, you're in the bottom, you're in the middle, you're at the top, right? And and we positioned it as bottom being some lift. You know, you have some ability. And obviously, they still did. We're not writing them off. But people loved being told. The program was was very positively received. They loved knowing where they stood. And they loved having a language that they could use to develop. Also, I think earlier in your career, you may not have gotten feedback. So this might be the first time they get feedback. And they really loved it. Higher up, you start to get a little more political, but we moved in that direction higher up too. And I hmm. think it's just one of those things that if you believe in it, you have to do it. Now, to your point, we did a benchmark in 2012, I think, right? Where we asked companies, how many are sharing? Um, and honestly, the percentage was pretty low at the time. I think it was 30, 34% were sharing at the time. And so 60, you know, 66% of companies don't tell, right? Janine and I just did a benchmark a couple of weeks ago for the leading edge consortium we presented at two weeks ago. And guess what? It went down. So oh, despite no. COVID and transparency and everything being values out there, people are talking about their EVPs. That's great. But it went down to 20% are now sharing formally. So that's an interesting paradox, right? That, that companies are talking about EVPs and thinking about the future and how to attract people and transparency is a, a key value being thrown around as a you know, employee value proposition element. And yet fewer companies are, are being transparent, at least with this part.
0: Right. At least based on your research. Well, I think it, it's an opportunity and we could probably spend another entire podcast talking about how do you be more transparent? Because I don't think there's a great playbook. And I think no. that's what scares most HR functions is like, how do I get the managers to have this conversation? They can really do a performance management year end <laughs> or mid year. How are they yeah. going to tell someone eloquently that we don't think they have potential at this time? Yeah. but. It's a really important point that I think. You know, I think it's you know, interesting that your research, the earlier career, they embraced it because yeah, they really did. You, you probably still have time to adjust, and if you say you have some potential, maybe I'm going to work harder. That's right, because that's the other piece that people totally miss is that potential is just talent plus effort. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, if you have more potential, you can. In you have more talent, let's say, right, you can work less hard. <laughs> right and put in less effort and get the same amount of results so that's what potential is you're like the greatest athletes of all time you know when i'm a big kobe fan you talk about kobe and he worked hard he had the talent but he put the effort in and that's why he's one of the greatest basketball players and it's kind of the same thing for any of us how hard are you going to work because if other right. people outwork you you still have potential but you have to put the effort in to manifest that.
1: But I'll, I'll give you a different example. And for the people that know me, they'll know this as well, but I'm a Roger Federer fan. Um, oh, me too. Yeah. A huge Fed fan. I was, you know, um, been following his career for a long time. And it's the same example that you just gave. It's slightly different. He had the talent. He worked really hard. But early on in his career, he had trouble controlling his temper, right? Very early when he first showed up on the circuit. And and there are some play you can find a few videos of things, right? But he realized, You know, the story goes anyway, he was watching himself on TV have a tantrum and they were talking about it. And I don't know who, if it was McEnroe back then or who was talking about him, but he didn't like that was projecting a bad image of him as a leader and as of a, you know, athlete and representing the sport. And so he controlled that. And so there are very few times throughout the rest of his career where you could see some cracks. Uh, and unlike some other players who we know well, who throw rackets at people and do all kinds of things, he did not. And that's one of the reasons people think he's one of the greatest players of all time. Even if he doesn't have all the records anymore, he's still got a ton, but, but it's because he was an ambassador for the sport. And you think about that. And from a talent point of view, it's being a role model. It's being, you know, someone who goes with the organization, helps people versus is always complaining, always, you know, to your point, working hard and making it happen, but not being difficult about it.
0: Yeah. And obviously, he had learning agility and that kind of obviously yeah. enough insight and humility to want to change. But he also really represented the sport. And it's like yeah. he focused on the sport. And I think a lot of people need to be more business first, yeah. you know, less my function first or me first, right? Yeah.
1: Enterprise mindset is I would tell you from all the research we've done and all the models I've ever done, that's one of the ones that's really hard for people. And I would say that's for anybody in here on HR, One of the most challenging things I've seen as people get further along in their career in HR in particular is the inability to focus outside or the lack of interest, right? It's a little bit of that learning we talked about too, but HR has to be thinking about the future. If HR is the glue that holds the organization together, right, and represents the culture, reinforces, does the policies and practices that make the company strong culturally, then they almost have to be scanning outside to see what other people are doing, what other cool ideas are out there, other companies, where talent's going and thoughtfully bring that back. And if they're not, if they're not always learning and not always thinking about that and not always having that external perspective, eventually it's myopic. And you just, you go in a downward spiral. So why aren't we don't have a good EVP? Well, maybe because it's a 20 year old EVP. And I think that is going to take us to the COVID concept of why people, you know, what's the future of talent? I think a lot of companies are struggling with getting over the hump of it really has changed, you know?
0: Yeah, it really has. So last question for you, Alan, what is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years?
1: So I came up with two quotes for you, if that works. Perfect. Well, one's kind of old, one's kind of new. And the first one is from Socrates, All right? So we're going a little back in time. And I would say the secret of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. So that's the old one. Very wise. The
0: second one
1: is from President Barack Obama. And that is, change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. And my final sort of thought for the HR leaders out there and and the future HR leaders HR is a powerful function if you make it so, right? But it's up to all of us to, to be the voice of the employee, to be the voice of how we should do talent and culture and how we should do it well. And I think we have the power to change companies and we should be embracing that, not following you know kind of whatever somebody else tells us or the wind.
0: Alan, I love that. I think, you know, it reminds me of my favorite Gandhi quotes, be the change you want to see in the world, but more importantly, build the future, right? And I Mm -hmm. think that's HR. We really are building the workforce of the future. Thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast, Alan. It was a pleasure.
1: Thanks, JP. This has been great.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Alan for sharing his insights on talent management and potential. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Suzanne Myers, Chief Human Resources Officer at Arcoza. In our conversation, Suzanne and I will discuss how being a talent acquisition leader prepared her to become a CHRO, why your employer value proposition should have three layers, and how to be resilient and overcome career setbacks and more. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.